Hey, good morning, everybody. Once again, just want to encourage you to go to mhcc.life this morning, and the top card that you'll see there will have a link that will send you, hopefully, to um, the trailer for the Mallory's Army movie next week. Mallory Grossman's mom, Diane, will be here, and she's going to be sharing with us the story of her little girl, Mallory. Um, super important that you be ready and prepared for uh, what she's going to bring and what the Lord is going to do with us and amongst us as we look at the story of what this outcast syndrome is doing to the kids right here in our midst. Today, today I want to start by, well, I want to start with Matthew, the, the Jewish tax collector turned disciple. Matthew recorded a pretty famous line from Jesus, one that's been, well, it's been revised over the time and one that I'm sure you've borrowed from Jesus and you didn't even know you were doing it. Here's the context of the line. Matthew writes that, And the blind and the lame came to him, Jesus, in the temple, and Jesus healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to Jesus, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Well, and then he quotes a psalm. Psalm 8, to be specific, a psalm he knew that they knew, and which even somebody who's never read the Bible at this point likely knows. You know it too. Jesus said, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And so what saying did we get from Jesus that Jesus took from the psalms? Out of the mouths of babes. And when do we say it? Well, we say it when wisdom comes from unexpected places, right? Now this week, this week, I came across some of that wisdom. Fifteen kids were asked about their thoughts on marriage. And again, some priceless wisdom for you here. First, first, the first question was, when is it okay to kiss someone? Well, Howard, age eight, said, the rule goes like this. If you kiss someone, then you should marry them and have kids with them. It's the right thing to do. Kurt, age seven, said, the law says you have to be 18, so I wouldn't want to mess with that. Pam, age seven, she really gets it. When is it okay to kiss someone? Quote, when they are rich. To the question, what's the right age to get married? Freddie, age six, said, no age is good to get married at. You've got to be a fool to get married. How about this? The question was, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? To which Derek, age eight, answered, you might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. What do most people do on a date, they were asked. How's this for some wisdom? Martin, age 10, said, this is so good. He said, well, on the first date, they'll just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough for a second date. How do you decide who to marry? Kristen, age 10, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all the way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. And the last one, again, listen to the brilliance of Ricky, age 10, who was asked, how would you make a marriage work? And he, with wisdom beyond his years, responded, tell your wife that she looks pretty even if she looks like a truck. Out of the mouths of babes. And see, the, the reason that this saying has resonated for thousands of years, it's actually twofold. One, wisdom is often found in places where you least expect to find it. The second reason is that we tend to make judgments about where wisdom can be found. 
Now look, I know my audience, and heck, this is church, and so if, if I ask most of you where wisdom could be found, I think a lot of you would say, well, it can be found from God or in the Bible, and of course you'd be right. If, if I pressed you, though, for, for maybe a less spiritual answer, you might say, well, someone more experienced than me might have wisdom, or more educated than me, or more successful than me. And of course, there is wisdom that can be found there, too. But, but my premise, I guess, is, is this this morning, that almost none of us would say that wisdom or truth or knowledge could be found through studying the outcasts of the world. You know, the ones that we call or see or sense as less than, less than us, less experienced or, or less educated or less successful. Now, we might never give voice to that, but gosh, we tend to act that way. Guys, we are in week three of our series called Outcasts. We're looking at Jesus' interactions with, the way he treated and dealt with, the social and religious outcasts of his day. And we've already covered so much ground, way too much to go back over. If you've missed some of this, please go back online and catch up. It's so important. And so far, what we've looked at is God's heart for those far from him and those whom society at large and the church in general have marginalized and maligned. We've looked at the dangerous pursuit that all of us fall victim to, the pursuit of what C.S. Lewis called in his brilliant essay by the same name, The Inner Ring. He was referring to our relentless desire to be part of the in crowd, the powerful, a desire which Lewis summed up by saying, of all passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet very bad do very bad things. And we've seen that over the last couple of weeks in the disciples and, well, hopefully in ourselves. Now, we're going to pick up that train of thought next week with Diane Grossman, Mallory Grossman's mom, the little 12-year-old girl who took her life because of bullying, because of a feeling like an outcast. Next week, we'll look at modern-day outcast stories, tragedies, and, and strategies for helping us to overcome this deep-seated tendency. But today, what I want to do today is go back to what I described to you last week as one of the most misunderstood stories in all of the Bible, and dangerously so too, because there is wisdom and warning for us in the story. Wisdom for the in crowd, the winners, the successful and beautiful people. Wisdom that comes from an outcast. You know, people like us, and, and, and maybe you go, well, what do you mean like us? Well, here, simply put, people like us who live in the 10th wealthiest county in the United States, which is the wealthiest country in the history of the world. Now, you may not feel part of the in crowd or the privileged, but the truth is that in pursuit of the inner ring, if you live around here, you are deeper in the onion of power and influence than you might imagine. Now, maybe when I say these things, you say, John, I don't have that kind of money or influence and power. And you might not. But gosh, if you live around here, it's really hard to avoid this kind of mindset. And so today, you and I, many of us who consider ourselves to be modern-day disciples, followers of Jesus, we need to learn, we have much to learn from this ultimate of outcast story. It's the same lessons Jesus needed to teach his first century disciples. So let's get back to our story from last week. Jesus, 
the gospel records of both Mark and Matthew tell us, that after feeding thousands on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, he tells his disciples to get in the boat, and then together they cross over to the other side, the side of the sea occupied by the Canaanites, Israel's great enemy, a side of the sea where he will again repeat that same miracle of feeding, this time for the Gentiles. And he does it on both sides for a reason. You see, Jesus was taking the boys on a field trip of sorts to see if they understood his current mission and their future calling. The calling you and I now share, it's a, it's a calling to these outcasts, to those far from God. Now, when Jesus and the guys get over there, upon their arrival, lots of crowds begin to gather because the word is out in the Gentile territories that there is an itinerant rabbi, and this one is different than all of the others. The first thing that's different is, well, that he's a healer. He claims to have been sent by God, and in fact, to be God, and he's using miraculous healings as his proof du jour of his authority. The second unusual thing is that this rabbi seems interested in, well, in the others, in healing them too, the, the non-Jews, the, the Gentiles, and, and not just the Gentiles, like the least of these Gentiles, the lepers and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the lowest of the low, the Gentiles on the other side of the lake, they've heard about it, they've understood it, they got it. And so when Jesus arrives, they come running. Jesus' disciples, well, both then and, and sometimes now, we don't get it as much. And thus, the field trip. Now, last week, last week we looked at the troubling, misunderstood encounter that I referred to before. It's between Jesus and, well, between Jesus and an outcast among outcasts. It's this Canaanite woman from the city of Tyre. It was, in one sense, the city of Tyre. It was the Sodom and Gomorrah of the day. And if you want, you can go back to last week and you can hear the backstory of this woman and what makes this encounter so provocative and unusual. But let's just put it this way for now. Good rabbis don't even stop to talk with women, let alone, let alone women from Tyre. This encounter is not predictable. Heck, it's, it's not permitted and the disciples know that. So too does this woman. And that's what makes what's about to happen so amazing. Matthew, he records it this way. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And thus, as we discovered last week, you have the perfect setup for the perfect teacher's perfect test. It was a, a test at one level for his disciples to see what they've learned from him about outcasts and how they're to be treated. And it was also a test for this woman to see what she understood, to see what she knew about Jesus. Now, last week, we discovered the disciples, well, they failed the test, and they failed it miserably. This week... We need to learn what Jesus wants us to see from this woman and her test. Now, you might remember Jesus' reply. Perhaps knowing that he's never failed to heal anybody that's come to him asking for healing, Jew or Gentile, you might expect Jesus to do just as she asks. But Matthew, when he records it quite intentionally, he writes that Jesus did not answer a word. Guys, 
This woman comes crying to Jesus and she receives stone-cold silence, indifference, the holy cold shoulder in a sense. And why? It's so unusual, right? Well, theologian Kenneth Bailey, he explains it's because this is step one in the test. Jesus is letting the moment hang. He's being quiet because he wants to see what his disciples will do, how they're going to respond. And he wants to see what this woman will do too, how she's going to respond. Now, last week, last week we examined how pitifully the disciples failed the outcast test. In light of all Jesus had said and done, and he had hoped that in this moment of silence they might reveal to this woman, given the opportunity, the heart, compassion, and love of God, that, the kind of heart that God has for her. But what did they say? How did they reply to her tears and the pain of an outcast? Well, Matthew writes, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. First trimester grades are in, and it's a big Eferuski. A woman comes at great personal risk to herself, crossing all kinds of religious and ethnic lines. She cries out to Jesus. She acknowledges him as Lord. And then as son of David, perhaps she understands the prophecies of the Messiah. And so she's acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. She weeps over her daughter who's suffering terribly. And all they see is an outcast. And they say, send her away. Well, Jesus responds with test two. He ratchets up the rhetoric. Second trimester tests tend to be more difficult. And so to their request to send her away, Jesus responds to them with what he's likely fearing their thinking. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. In a sense, he's going, isn't that right, guys? I'm only here for just you, right? Now, guys, I believe this to be a rhetorical statement. Jesus is hoping they rebuff this. Why do I believe that? Well, because he's already told them, according to John, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Mark had recorded chapter earlier, uh, chapters earlier Jesus saying that, quote, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And so Jesus, he utters that line, and he waits again, hoping that just one of them would get it, that one of them would understand how inane what he just said was in light of all that he's taught and done. Think about this, the author of all truth, he sits and waits to be corrected, but no correction comes, merely just tacit compliance at best and complete agreement at worst. And, and so the grades are in on test two. It's again an epic failure. It's a giant F. But, but you see there's a, well, there's a, a second student in the classroom. It's one the popular kids seem to have ignored in their minds. If, if dunce caps existed, she'd be wearing one. Yet she's undergoing the same test. You ever thought about it this way? Same test different student. And so test one, Jesus in the, in, in the face of her, her faith and her cries and her pain, he stays silent. He, he seemingly ignores her cries. 
And here's the key. Think about this. Jesus' silence was enough to convince his disciples that Jesus didn't care. For his disciples, his silence equated to them, well, as send her away, he doesn't care. But to the woman, to the woman it only meant stay right where you are, he isn't done. You see, the disciples interpreted Jesus' silence in response to her cries as a no. She just assumes that it's only a not yet. And so let me ask each of you, you modern-day disciples, how do you do on, on part one of the test? How, how many of you, how many of us have come to these places of trials or, or traumas and have cried out to God for something? And guys, this is a major league trauma. This is not, you know, dear God, help my kid make the team. This is Jesus, my daughter is suffering terribly. How many, how many of us have cried out like this and been met with God in silence? I have. And if the truth is fully told, I've often failed the test. Because I, like the disciples, I too have equated God's silence as his indifference. And as a result, there have been times when I have given up. Imagine this. There have been times when I have given up on God and done exactly what the disciples wanted her to do, to give up and go away. Have you ever wondered how much good has been given up on the altar of expedience? You see, and we need to learn from this now, okay? We people of power and influence. She passed the test for two reasons. She decided that what she was coming for was worth waiting for, worth staying and striving and contending for. That was the first reason she passed the test. But the second was though she hardly knew Jesus. In one way, in another way, she knew him better than the disciples who had walked with him. She knew him enough to trust that her cries mattered to Jesus even though he was silent. Do you? Do you trust in his goodness even in his silence? Because I can tell you this, he doesn't want you to go away. I want to encourage you just like this woman to stay right there with him like this woman, to trust in his goodness despite his silence, to not give up or give in or go away. Joan and I, in our home, we have a plaque right by our door. You see it every morning when you go in, uh, every time you go in and out that door all day long. It, it's, it, it's from Psalm 46. It's verse 10. Every time I walk out my door every morning, it says this, be still and know that I'm God. You see, the silence of God has nothing to do with his indifference. Mother Teresa, right? She lived through what the church has called a 50-year period of the dark night of the soul. She would say, I cried out for 50 years in God's silence. Jesus on the cross, he cried out to God and was greeted with only silence. God didn't abandon Mother Teresa. He certainly didn't abandon Jesus. And he's not going to abandon you either. Don't fail this test. Trust in his goodness and stay with him. It's part of the test. Be still. Know that he's good. 
know that he's God. Now, test two, and, and again, a bit more difficult. Jesus says, so she can hear to his disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, if Jesus' silence was not enough to chase her off, this seems pretty direct, right? Jesus says to the disciples, and she overhears it, I'm not here for this outcast. I'm only here for you guys, the in crowd. This should have been enough to discourage her. But how does she respond in the face of the discouragement? Matthew writes that the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Guys, do you get it? She, she doesn't double time it out of there in discouragement. She doubles down in prayer, in faith. She doesn't have pessimistic faith. Uh, he's probably not going to come through. She has persistent faith. In front of the obstacles, she perseveres through. This is not a lesson of Jesus on the power of prayer. It's a lesson on the power of faith. Later, in the face of, all, of obstacles, all of these disciples would walk away. Peter would deny him. Judas would betray him. In this moment, they could have all learned just a little something from this student that they would have considered to be in the remedial class because she has faith that perseveres. She does not give up. Have you? Because there is something about persistence and faith. The disciples should have known it. Jesus had taught it to them over and over. You might remember one time, um, they came to him and they asked him to teach them how to pray. And Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer. You know the Lord's Prayer. Many of you could recite it by memory right now. Could you, though, recite the parable that comes right with it? It's, it's one we should have committed to memory too. It, it, we stop our memory too soon. Luke chapter 11, verses 2 to 4 is the Lord's Prayer, but it doesn't actually end in verse 4 because in verse 5, Jesus goes on. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked. My kids and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, I love that, shameless audacity, a word that could be translated persistence, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now that's a strange story, but it's coupled to the Lord's Prayer. And you might think, well, maybe it's just a one-time moment, except that just a short time later, Luke records something else Jesus said that he told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Well, for some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I will tell you, Jesus said. 
He will see that they get justice and quickly. And then he adds this. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Persistence and faith. Can I fully explain this principle? No. But, but what I think Jesus is saying is, is that, look, if a cranky neighbor and an unjust judge are impressed and moved by persistence, and they're not even good, they don't even love, just imagine, imagine what your Father in heaven will do for you if you do not give up, give in, or walk away. And again, Jesus said at the end, this is a faith issue. You want a rhyme to remember it by? Jesus said, bother your father. Bother your father. Are you persistent in your pursuit of God or does the slightest obstacle get in your way and get you to believe things about God that are not true? I mean, heck, Jesus here says things about God that are not true as part of his test, and this woman does not believe it. Do you see the kind of faith she has? Now, lastly, lastly, I'm not going to hide this. Lastly, the most difficult test for this woman comes, and it's the most difficult one for us too. He, he replied so she could hear, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, as we learned last week, Jesus says this because it's what he knows the disciples are thinking. This is their mindset towards the outcast. In Jerusalem, Gentiles were often derogatorily referred to as Gentile dogs. This was not a term of endearment. Dogs in Middle Eastern traditional culture are almost as despised as pigs. Dogs were never pets. They were just kept as half-wild guard dogs left to wander unattended as street scavengers. They subsist on garbage. If you've been with us to the garbage dump in Guatemala, you know what I mean. You know what kind of dogs Jesus is referring to here. And here's the hard truth. It's one thing to ignore her, please, or to say she's not a priority. But this, this is downright insulting. But yet, Bailey points out there is something very interesting going on here. See, this woman more than likely knows that the disciples consider her a Gentile dog. She's been hearing that insult for generations. But in giving voice to what the disciples are thinking, and again, this was a test for them to see if this insult in the face of this woman's cries for mercy would rattle them, it was their final test. They fail again. But this woman, this woman noticed something different. You see, when Jesus called her a dog, he didn't use the common term for dog. He chose to use the diminutive form. He softened the term. He changed it from something like junkyard dog to doggy, to little, little dog, from German shepherd, in a sense, to shih tzu. Now, we know how the disciples responded. They likely nodded their head in agreement. And we probably know how the woman should have responded. I mean, I know how I would have responded. She should have responded at least the way we do today, right? With outright indignity. A dog? You call me a dog? Who do you think you are? What kind of so-called Messiah, after all I've done, would you call me a dog? I'm no dog. You and your pathetic disciples, you're the dogs. I mean, isn't this how we respond to just the slightest bit of criticism, critique? Have you spent any time in the in the Facebook comment section lately. I mean, it's horrible to see the way we respond to one another. 
I mean, honestly, I don't know which comment section is more ugly. The Long Valley Facebook page, the Chester Facebook page, or the Christian and Missionary Alliance Workers Facebook page. But I do know which one should be better. You see, the expected response would be, how dare you, or do you know who I am? Why don't you care about me? I deserve this. My daughter doesn't deserve this. Look at all that I and my family have done. This is evil. How can you respond like that? You're supposed to be good. But this is not how she responds. And boy, do the disciples then and now have something to learn from the outcast here. See, she responds in total and complete humility. Yes, it is, Lord. She does not rise up. She condescends. Yes, Lord, you are God and I am not. She didn't accuse him of bigotry or sexism or racism. She didn't insist to be canceled. She simply recognized that he was above her and had every right to say what he did. She was willing to lower her position by accepting the, the term dogs. She simply accepted her position in the eyes of the Lord and humbled herself before him. She did not try to dictate to him how she should be treated. She simply left herself in the hands of God. If she was going to get help from him, she knew that she needed to humble herself before him and recognize her deep need for him. She didn't make any demands. She didn't fight for her rights. She didn't tell God what she deserved. She accepted what he said of her because she knew what he thought of her. Can I say that again? She accepted what he said of her because she knew what he thought of her. Something every single follower of Jesus has to at some point come to grips with. All of us, all of us are sinners in need of saving. All of us are wayward in desperate need of repentance. All of us need to accept that humbling truth. Pride does not get in this woman's way, but does it get in yours? How do you approach God? In humility or in pride? Do, do you sense that he owes you? I mean, right after Jesus told the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge, he, he went right into this story. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus concluded, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. While the disciples in Tyre were busy exalting themselves, she was busy humbling herself. The disciples then, and now, boy, the disciples now, we have much to learn. Well, the encounter wraps up this way. Anybody else would have walked, but she doesn't. Yes, it is, Lord, she says. 
But then realizing that Jesus had used this softer term for dog, I think, the diminutive form, and because she knew him and trusted him, she knew by his teachings and his actions that he did not really feel this way. And maybe now, because of the way Jesus had put this, she figures out this whole thing is more of a tongue-in-cheek test for her and the disciples. She responds, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. In fact, she actually responds with, the diminutive form of crumbs. In a sense, she goes, well, Jesus, even the little dogs eat the little crumbs. At this point, I actually think she's just playfully joking with Jesus. It's, it's like an inside joke that suddenly she gets. The disciples, blinded by their pride, though, miss out on. And then Jesus said to her, woman, But in the Greek text, actually, a single letter comes first, O. O, woman. Jesus' heart is just full. Maybe his eyes are at this point, too. You have great faith. Jesus' word there, great, comes from a form of the word we use today for mega, mega malls and mega churches. Jesus says this Gentile woman has mega faith. And so now the grades are being posted. The disciples, well, let's just say they'll be taking this class again. The woman, Jesus said, to the woman, Jesus said, your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Church family, we have much, much to learn from the outcast, from the marginalized, from the least of these. Listen to me now. We do not go searching for the outcast because we're better than them. We're on no mission of mercy. We go searching for them because they matter to God, all of them, even the ones that you might see as dogs. And we search for them because they know something about God that those of us on the inside will often miss. We need what they know. The Lord taught me this very personally, years ago in, in Guatemala, many of you know we go down every year to the garbage dump in Guatemala, and we go on prayer walks, and we go into the homes of some of the poorest people on earth. Most of them are illiterate. Most of them have little to no formal education at all. And years ago, I felt like the Lord said to me, I want you to stop going into those homes thinking that you have something to bring them. I want you to go into those homes believing that they have something that you need to hear. And so you have, if you've ever gone with me on those trips, you know on those prayer walks, my, my first question is to them is, I'm here because I believe that the Lord might have a message for me from you. I would like you to teach me what you know about God because I fear amidst all of the inner ring, I may be missing him. And I listen. Can you imagine if the disciples, when this was all over, if they if they humbled themselves and said to the woman, hey, could you tell us how you had faith and trust when, when you were faced with God's silence? Or could you, could you let us know how to have persistence in light of God's slowness? How about humility in light of God's truth? You see, they, they would need to know. We need to know. And I'm telling you, it's really hard to find that in the inner ring. See, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this story. It's, it's about seeking wisdom from the outcast. Tony Campolo said that he was asked to be a counselor in a junior high camp. 
He said everybody ought to be a counselor at a junior high camp just once. A junior high kid's concept of a good time is picking on people. He said in this particular case, at this particular camp, there was a little boy who was suffering from cerebral palsy. His name was Billy. And they picked on him. Oh, they picked on him. As he walked across the camp with his uncoordinated body, they would line up and imitate his, his grotesque movements. I, I watched him one day as he was asking for direction. Which way is the, 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 the crap shop? He stammered, his mouth contorting. And the boys mimicked in that same awful stammer. It, 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 it's o o over there, b b Billy. And they laughed at him. Kim Polo said, I was irate, but, but my fury, he said, reached its highest pitch when on Thursday morning it was Billy's cabin's turn to give devotions. I wondered what would happen because they had appointed Billy to be the speaker. I knew that they just wanted to get him up there and make fun of him. And as he dragged his way to the front, you could hear giggles rolling over the crowd. It took Billy almost five minutes to say seven words. Jesus loves me and I love Jesus. When he finished, there was dead silence. He said, I looked over my shoulder and saw junior high boys bawling all over the place. A revival broke out in that camp after Billy's short testimony. And as I travel all over the world, I find missionaries and preachers who say, remember me? I was converted at that junior high camp. We counselors had tried everything to get those kids interested in Jesus. We even imported baseball players whose batting average had gone up since they'd started praying. They wanted the inner ring guys. Campolo said, but God chose not to use superstars. He chose a kid with cerebral palsy to break the spirits of the haughty. He's that kind of God. Paul put it this way, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That includes us. And now it is our turn to go and seek them, to search for them, to find them, and to learn from them.